Today we have on the show Scott Cushing, an assistant professor at Caltech University. Scott is an advisor to Pi Energy, and today we're going to talk about physics, one of my loves, and I think you're going to really enjoy the show. Take a listen. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining us. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, so um, I'm an assistant professor at Caltech, and what we've focused on, or you know, what kind of my career is built to, is a specialization in building new scientific instrumentation. Now, within that, you know, very broad saying type of thing, my my particular fascination is with lasers. I love lasers. <laughs> I love everything about them. So I have a you know kind of broad array of different techniques that we've developed, and you know, these range from things like you know making tabletop synchrotrons or tabletop X-ray sources to looking into things like time resolved TM. Actually, you know, on a few femtoseconds looking at atomic motions um all the way up now to we're looking at you know novel uses of entanglement and entangled photons you know how can we use them beyond the more standard quantum information um you know quantum computation point of view so yeah you know that's kind of our our lab's general goal and where it's a it's a little different or sometimes unique from what some people's vision of science is is that we kind of our science itself is how you can create these instrumentation and the physics and the chemistry and everything that goes into them and then you know once we have this we then you know tailor it, we make it in collaboration with a lot of different people so that we can answer the questions that, you know they've just been unable to solve in their own so you know instrumentation building it's a kind of a, a very fun spot because you're left with these problems in different fields where like everyone knows it's vital but no one can figure out how to do it and it's kind of the hunt of how to figure that out yeah so I've always had a question on entangled photons. So how do you how do you create one and how would you measure one? Yeah, so <laughs> the, the answer to that question is the answer of basically everything in laser science. You just start with a big laser. So if you start with a big laser and it has high enough power, we use things that are called nonlinear crystals. And to the eye, these basically look like just a piece of glass. But they have specific atomic properties. You know, they have specific ways they're put together so that when you send, say, a red laser beam through it, it's going to come out blue. In other words, these crystals, when you have enough energy going into it, they can actually convert between different frequencies of light. So the standard nonlinear processes, like I said, you know, we send in one red photon and you get out two blue. So what we're doing with the entanglement is we go, we use a specific set of crystals, and we go to very low powers, basically. And what we're relying on is actually the input beam. It's a similar process, one photon going into two. Except for now, we rely on this input beam. This is a lot of jargon here, but coupling to what we call the vacuum state. And if you aren't familiar with the vacuum state in quantum mechanics, it's basically a, a fluctuation of the zero level. You know, in, in quantum mechanics, everything, even when it's in its lowest state, has some energy. So when you want to create entanglement, you couple the vacuum state in a beam, and what comes out on the other side, it's two photons, but now we don't know which photon is which. As in, you know, you can take these two photons, um, and the classic example is you send one to point A, one to point B, 
you do a measurement on point B and then you know what point A is, Mm -hmm. you know, but when they're together, you have no idea which photon is which. And those capabilities, that kind of, it's not instantaneous necessarily because you still have to communicate information back and forth. But, you know, that's what's leading to this kind of surge in, you know, new applications. Mm -hmm. So, so some of the things we were working on before was, uh, so we were working on the, the plasmonic resonant energy. So uh, it almost seems like there's a little bit of, maybe not entangled it, but coupling of fields. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a great example of, you know, again, you know, kind of the type of science I do because the project we worked together, you know, on solar cells that, you know, you brought me in as a consultant from mm-hmm. academia. Um, I think I was finishing my PhD at the time. It's been yeah. a few. But, um, but you know, what we're doing there is I built a specific set of new laser equipment. Mm-hmm. And that whole laser equipment set was based on, you know, understanding um, solve. You never say the word solve. That's a strong word. But at least <laughs> understanding and getting good approximations for how plasmons could transfer energy. And how plasmons, you could, like you said, get them to interact and change. Mm. and get these interactions going so you know from that you know ultrafast laser based science you know the, the complexity there we you end up coming out of it with not a simple result but a, a relatively simple set of design rules that we're able to create for how you could best use a plasmon in a solar energy you know mm. photovoltaic or you know a solar to fuel type process mm. and that's how we ended up linking up and so I think that's a really cool connection you know I was talking about entanglement that mm. seems very unrelated to energy mm. but it you know we don't know you know, it could be it could be 10 years, but entanglement may be another one of those steps. But, yeah, so I, I, I love that connection that was able to be made because it shows, you know, that, that being in academia, even, you know, my academic work, you know, outside will probably be considered very esoteric because, you know, I'm 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 below the application, below thinking about applications all the way down to the point where it's like sometimes we enter problems. We don't know why we need to study them. We just know that we can and yeah. no one's done it. So you do it, you know, very open ended research. But those projects, you know, when you collaborate closely, they lead to these results where it's fundamental science, but it has a good, you know, explanation out of it. And, you know, I, I think a uh, a big thing that promotes these kind of like academic industrial partnerships is, you know, at least on the academic side, taking the time to actually learn how to talk about and describe what it is instead of just leaving it in a formula. So yeah, from that, we got an amazing partnership together. Yeah, I think it was interesting because uh, we were working on the many body of the uh, of photonic crystal, I mean, a uh, excuse me, a <laughs> of of photovoltaic. Yes. So we're trying to look at a mini photons and you were looking at the individual discrete, these individual nanoparticles that were transferring uh, plasmonic energy from a metal nanoparticle to a semiconductor. So then it was interesting because we're looking, I remember looking at some of your papers saying, hey, this would be great if we could do it in our cell where you take an individual, the discrete level of science that you were looking at and putting it into a large area. So it was interesting to try to couple that. So what was interesting is how we uh, we started working together. So you were at the University of uh, West Virginia, working, finishing your PhD and had quite a few papers. So I read some of those papers, but at that time you were at the University of California, Berkeley doing your postdoc. And we started talking back and forth. Um, and, and I think that was really interesting is how we started looking at this problem where we actually married our design 
with some of the things you were working on. And um, but was really great as you had a you know, you're very good at describing that that really complex process of this resonance between that plasmon and the coupling between that and the semiconductor. And uh, and then after that, I think what was interesting, so we started working together, you came down uh, and uh, uh, maybe tell me a little bit about how, from your perspective, working as a postdoc, where you're doing just basic research and then working with a company, how 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 did that um, work in 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 that type of postdoc environment? Yeah, no, it was it was incredibly enriching. Um, and I have to um, give thanks for the time for the Department of Energy was sponsoring me on a on a postdoctoral fellowship, mm-hmm. which was basically completely unrelated mm-hmm. at that point to what you and me were talking about. I was on the road to you know building a new instrument again. Um, but yeah, it was it was very enriching to me because I got to start to see the broader aspect of what, I don't want to say what science needs at my level, but, you know, it really gave me that, that much higher view to, it still guides my research of, you know, when I'm looking at project of like, okay, does this long-term, could it have a long-term, you know, actual application? You know, when I build an instrument, you know, I'm not just thinking anymore, you know, it used to be just like, okay, what's the science problem? Let's do it. But now with most of the things I do, you know, my process kind of starts off in a duality and the part of me is like, okay, what's the science? We got to do this. But the other part of me always has an eye on, you know, could we get this to an application? Could this instrument be widespread? You know, like what would be the process steps in between there? And, you know, I, I learned a lot, you know, my, probably my favorite, I don't know, for me, the shining moment was when I first came and talked to you, um, I came and gave a presentation um, and, you know, we went through the presentation. It was good. You know, the science ones of you all really liked it. But then um, your your venture capitalist advisor, David, mm-hmm. so, um, asked me, he was like, well, like, what's the actual, it's cool like this has this efficiency, it has mm-hmm. this coupling, it seems strong, it can absorb a lot of light and get it to a semiconductor. But he's like, what's like a cost for like, what's like a watt per like kilogram? You're like, what's like a, uh, you know, how much is this actually going to cost to assemble one of these? And I was baffled because I had never once in my career thought of that. Um, you know, so that, that really did change my thinking. Um, it changed it to the point where I still have several students, um, in my new, you know, research group and they, I have them do, uh, entrepreneurial classes they have on campus and have them, you know, take these high levels just so they can actually see the process it takes to get science and the, you know, early stage technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I think it does again, it makes them when they're looking and they're doing their research, it keeps them out of this like tiny pinpoint. And, you know, not that you can predict new technologies, you know, not that you always know what's going to happen, but you can definitely, at least for me, it improved my research style by constantly having that in the back of my head. Like, you know, like if I would take this down to PIE energy, like, what would they say about it? Like, you know, like, what would they say? Like, what are, you know, the hundred flaws that would make this so it can never be realistic? And, you know, if that's what it ends up with an instrument, you know, uh, you know, long term, then sometimes you ax it. If it can't fade all those, you do a few science things, but you got to say, let's move on. Because, you know, for me, my personal dream, and this comes out of, you know, actually getting to see the business world and all the knowledge I've gained from interacting with you all is, you know, I guess like my long-term science goal, you know, 
I mean, right, like no one's going to say no to a Nobel Prize, you know, (laughs) but, you know, incredibly unrealistic. But, you know, long term, my goal was like, you know, I want to make the next like NMR. I want to make the next UVs, the next CAT scan, you know, like I want to make that one instrument that, you know, actually makes it into, you know, you know, everyone. Yeah. Labs, hospitals, you know, factories like Mm -hmm. so that's like my that's my dream. And like, you know, that dream, though, it comes out of interacting with you. I never would have thought that even possible. So it's been hugely enriching. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's uh, you have different perspectives from from business. You're you're focused on getting something out immediately, and then science in the university level, you're just looking at the science. But marrying the two, there's a lot of benefits because you have the deep understanding you get from the research, and then you have the practical side coming from industry. And of course, the challenge is mirroring those two because there's you know the university has a different focus you know it's got to publish and then in in industry where you know there's a lot of push get it out there now so it's a uh there is some dichotomy of what the uh general push is from each one of the organizations but i think there's some really good um potential if they can work together so it's been really exciting i mean a lot of great ideas some of the thermal ideas we had back then i i I just wish we had the resources to pursue them further and like what we are working on it's really exciting and we really like to pursue it but the challenge is you have to in my world we have to focus so um it's been uh it's a really great opportunity but at the same time there's challenges so we were working on this plasmonic absorption. We ran into some challenges, but then what was really interesting, so we're using that to absorb light, make a really good absorber, then transfer that energy in a photovoltaic. We got ran into some problems with hot electrons, recomb- recombination, but this pirate method uh, was really interesting. It bypasses the issue with hot electrons. So why don't you kind of describe that. It was a little tough and how we, uh, how that proceeded. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think first we should start off with just explaining what a plasmon is because that's already a piece of jargon that's not commonplace even amongst different scientific fields. And the best way to think, or at least in my mind, this is the best way to think the analogy that I've used is, you know, a plasmon, you can kind of relate it to having a water balloon. And, you know, if you hold a water balloon at one end and you smack it or, you know, you say you had a speaker next to it, you're going to see it jiggle and it's going to oscillate back and forth. Now, you can take that water balloon, you can change the shape, you can fill it with less water. Every time you do that, you know, whenever you hit it or whenever there's sound hitting on, it's all it's going to jiggle a little bit different. It's going to oscillate a little bit. So you can actually replicate this phenomena by making very small nanometers, you know, um, what is it, a thousandth of a millionth of a meter um, type type particles. And in those, the electrons, what conducts electricity, will actually resonate just like the water balloon does. Except now that resonance is coming from light, which is what we want to capture from the sun. So you can imagine, you know, light coming in and kind of hitting these water balloons and they jiggle. Now, in and of itself, that's a very interesting property. But for a solar cell, we really want to be able to get this information. We want to be able to get this light now stored as ele- electrons, now stored as electricity into the rest of the solar cell because we need to be able to get a current. We need to be able to extract it. You can't just have a bunch of little nanoparticles with no connections. So what we ended up doing with Pirate is the idea behind that, again, another piece of jargon 
is that, you know, say, okay, we have two water balloons now and they're close and you hit one and it starts to wiggle and it'll make the other one wiggle. Well, that'd be like having two metal nanoparticles close. Now, what we do is connect this to what we call the semiconductor, which is the base layer of the solar cell. Now, it's not like the water balloon. It doesn't have, you know, this huge amount of electrons. It's not going to get hit by light. It's not going to juggle. That's fine, because in the semiconductor, we actually want charges to move away from each other. We don't want them to stay together. So what you do is that the semiconductor, you can basically think of it as, oh, how would you want to say? It's like a bunch of very small balloons around the main one. And what's going to happen is, you know, those little balloons, if you hit one, it's not going to jiggle much. It's not going to hold much energy in it for a long period of time. But now if you have a big balloon with all these little ones around it and you hit that balloon, the other ones are going to jiggle too. So you, and realistically, in a real device, we need to get some spacing between them. There's a few things, but taking that analogy, hopefully you can maybe see that when light hits, all the light's hitting and being not attracted, but being absorbed by this large, you know, water balloon, our plasmonic structure. And as it oscillates, the electrons and it oscillates, it now makes the electrons in the semiconductor oscillate. And you can excite the semiconductor just like if light was hitting it itself. So what's really valuable about this is you, it allows you to make very thin solar cells. And it allows you to use materials that may have, they don't absorb light very well on their own, or, you know, they don't quite get to the wavelength you want. As long as you have some residual, you know, water balloons sitting in your material, you can get this transfer of energy. And that in and of itself is going to allow you to make a more efficient solar cell. Yeah. And then I think what we're, the, the really exciting part about it is the metals, these metal nanoparticles are really good at absorbing light. So that's why we're able to absorb a lot. And then we had the, uh, some back reflector that was resonating. So it's really, it's the fields in there are kind of representing that transfer of energy. So I think that's a really good analogy. I hadn't heard that one before. It's even better than the ones you had. Uh, I, I love the graphic animation you had, but uh, that I, I saw. But it's really, because we were running into this problem where we, we kick off in a hot electron and just come right back and recombine. And this transfer between these water balloons, uh, the, electric, the electric field, these plasmons to the semiconductor bypass that. So it was a really exciting attempt. And with all things in, in uh, when you build it, we, you know, we didn't have a chance to really uh, uh, prove it out. So it was uh, lacking for resources. So it's, that's an exciting field. We wish we could have gotten a little farther along on. So um, that's a good explanation. I like that one. Uh, so what, what, what some of the things that you're working on now uh, in there, you're working at some fast dynamics. So tell me a little bit about some of the diagnostics you're doing with the equipment you have. Yeah, so, you know, long range, you know, kind of the goal I have in my lab, and I'll admit this is not necessarily a purely science given goal, it's because I have a huge curiosity, <laughs> is I, I want to be able to, you, to do ultra fast measurements at basically any wavelength we can produce, you know, going all the way from we're in the x-ray, we need to get deeper in the x-ray, but we're getting closer to getting up to like the 10 to 20 kV with these ultra fast pulses. But then I also want to go all the way to the other end, you know, I want to be able to do terahertz, gigahertz, hertz pulses, hmm. and how can I modulate these ultra fast to learn information that, that Im impacts these different materials, you know, like one great example um, of, you know, how 
you know, sometimes these instruments, you know, they cost millions of dollars. They take three labs three, or three graduate students to run. And even then, you know, we get it to work, you know, once a month. Yeah. But like from these instruments, the first version is always hard. But as it starts to filter down, you see some really cool signs. So like, you know, we're one instrument we're working on is a, a combination of um, ultra fast electronics and ultra fast lasers. And we're actually using that to understand how batteries work. So in, in a solid state battery of ions hopping on picoseconds, you know, mm -hmm. millionth of a millionth of a second, which is too fast for you to just, you know, hook up a, an oscilloscope right. or something and actually be able to see and even be able to diagnose. So we've combined these new technologies and we've built this new instrument now that we can actually watch as these ions hop and then combine that with the x-rays and figure out where they're hopping and how they're hopping. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have this wide range of techniques, but they're actually all very linked around just kind of the central core of ultrafast science. You know, some of them use x-rays, some of them use electrons in a wire. A lot, some of our newer techniques are using electrons in free space, you know, but it's all connected and it's all central to this idea. And, you know, when when you combine all that, it's fun the progress you make. Like you know, way out like things I'd love to do. You know, one day, but right now, uh, not 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 feasible. Slash, you know, not enough money. You know, money's right. a problem in academia, just like it is everywhere. But I I'm very gracious for those for for the people who sponsor me. Um, you know, but one thing I really want to do is start looking at okay, you know, can we do like entangled electron measurements? Mm. You know, in free space and in these materials. And you know, I, kind of the next generation for me is you know classical photons. You know we're still working on getting different frequency areas, new ways to apply them, ways to hook them up with, you know, electrical, which is becoming a very important thing with now the fact that, you know, all, all electronics are getting so fast. Um, but, you know, something I'm very curious in is, okay, you know, we're entering this new era where entanglement has a, a very big chance of impacting, you know, information systems um, and also has a really good chance with quantum computers. But, right. you know, how do we start preparing the tools to diagnose those? You know, if we are going to continue, you know, and push towards these new entangled and these new quantum technologies, classical light now kind of falls behind. So what you really want to be doing is if you have, you know, say, say you have this, you know, massive 64 qubit, you know, if it had some optical interaction computer, you want to be able to go in there and say, okay, how do we understand why this node is working the way it is, you know, beyond right. the high level function, you want to be able to dig in. So we're one of the, I'd say one of the newer perimeters and exciting things I'm working on is, you know, trying to develop the next generation of tools that will be able to immediately tell us this it's quantum information, these entangled states, how they're changing, um, just in the way, you know, that current semiconductor technology was hugely advanced. I mean, lasers had a huge role there in measuring scattering rates, but, you know, all the, all the measurements that came out of that that are now standard on an assembly line, we're trying to work towards figuring out what those could even be. That's kind of interesting because usually when you're thinking about an entangled electron or photon or anything, you're just measuring what comes out. So you actually want to look at it, what's going on in the changing state. Yeah. So that is really fantastic. So you're looking at the physical parameter, like the, the chemistry, not necessary chemistry, yeah. but... So, what's so, going on in the physical structure of the electron? So, yeah, so what you're, what you're looking at, and, you know, we have some preliminary results, but I can't say a publication name yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you have an incident photon hit a material, you can get a, a superposition, you know, a lower form of entanglement. But if that superposition is right after a long period of time, this is way too much jargon, you can get the other state back out. Okay. So what we're doing with our spectroscopy is, and, you know, instead of looking at what's coming out from the entangled state, you know, the zeros and ones or, you know, the tomography, you know, measuring that state. Instead, what we're looking at is, like you said, did the material it hit 
does it support entanglement? If it doesn't, what's the chemical process or the physical process that's disenabling that um, and what's going on? Or more interesting, like I said, in some results, results I, I want to publish, but we don't have them out yet. You know, we're finding that it, there are in some materials, you know, new states or new properties you can actually access. Huh. So a very interesting one that's a, this is my last example I'll give since this is, you know, getting pretty jargony. Um, but, you know, like a very fascinating thing that entangled photons do is that they take things like two and three and four or five photon absorption, you know, big laser high wow. power processes, and they make them linear. So it actually gets rid of nonlinearity. So like there's this huge range really? of inst both instrumentation related and application related things to explore. But right now, as far huh. as, as far as exploring these, this part of entanglement, it's a very nascent field as compared to the more mature, you know, for example, you know, there's things on LIGO, they stabilize with entangled photons or quantum information right. systems. But yeah, from an instrumentation standpoint, it's a lot of fun science. Huh. Yeah, I was, I was thinking because of the density of states would probably how you the materials density of states uh, couple into that, like, is it, uh, you know, near the, the upper gaps? Is it is it? linear there's lots of states. yeah so it's a complex function yeah, it's a complex function after as you get start getting the material science of it so well this has been a fantastic opportunity i love being able to talk physics and uh and and actually reminisce about some of the stuff we uh when we got together but um i really appreciate your being on the show today and um thank you and uh i look you i I wish you best luck on your research. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Today we had on the show Scott Cushing. Scott's an advisor to Pi Energy, and we talked about some of the things that are dear to my heart, physics and plasmons, entanglement. If you'd like to learn more, see us at www.pienergy.com. Thanks for listening.